0: You are listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, Chapter 1, where we will begin reading in verse 57 here in just... A moment. If you need a copy of God's Word, you'd like a hard copy to look off of, um, Christian Norton is uh, coming down the aisle with some extra, so slip up your hand, and he'll be glad to, to pass you one. And we'll begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, in just a moment. We are in a, a pause from our normal preaching schedule, and we are looking particularly at... Um, The Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke and how people responded to the message that Jesus was going to be born. We're looking at how people heralded the name of Christ when they understood what that meant. Last week, Darren Godwald preached for us from verses 39 through 55 uh, a meditation on the Song of Mary. But In the Gospel of Luke, Mary's story sits in the middle of two halves of another overlapping story. A story happening simultaneously. See, in Luke chapter 1, it begins not with the announcement to Mary, but actually begins with the announcement to Zechariah. Someone who we haven't talked about yet in this Advent series. The angel, Gabriel, appears to Zechariah as he's serving in the temple of God. He's a priest in Jerusalem. And the angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that his elderly, barren wife is going to give birth to a prophet who will prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. But in the first chapter, in the first narrative in Luke... Zechariah, serving as a priest in the city of Jerusalem, does not initially believe that such a thing can happen. So if you look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 19, as we're setting up our text for this morning. In Luke chapter 1, verse 19, it says, The angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent. And unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah is introduced to us as a man whose unbelief made him mute and unable to speak until the thing promised is Fulfilled, And I think Luke intentionally divides the two encounters in this way. With Zechariah, introduction on one end, and then uh, the conclusion of his narrative on the other end, and then Mary kind of in the middle. I think that Luke aims to make a theological point with the literary structure. Okay, what's the point? Well, Zechariah, presumably a wiser man, an older man, a distinguished man, a religiously righteous priest in the city of Jerusalem... One character, Mary, an unknown, seemingly insignificant, impoverished teenager from Nazareth, another character. Zechariah is told, your barren, very old wife is going to have a child, and he's going to be a prophet. Mary's told, even though you're a virgin, you will give birth to the Son of God, whose arrival that prophet is going to announce. Zechariah doesn't believe. Mary does believe. And I think that even in the structure of it, in the parallels that take place, there's a message even in the two characters. I think the message is this. It doesn't matter whether you're an impoverished teenage girl from a little town with a bad reputation or whether you're a distinguished priest serving in the Holy of Holies. The difference maker in this story that will be articulated throughout the whole Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the difference maker is whether you believe In God's unfolding plan of salvation through Jesus. Zechariah was to learn this lesson the hard way. One of the beautiful things about this narrative is that it wasn't over when Zechariah failed to believe in that first encounter. His spiritual journey was not over. God aimed to teach him a few things along the road of hard knocks, if you will. So this morning, we enter the story in verse 57... And it's been nine months. Nine months. For nine months, Zechariah, who made his living by teaching and talking, (laughs) right, as a priest, has been unable to articulate anything at all. His communication has been reduced to messages scribbled down on writing tablets. And we pick up the story in verse 57. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And that's per the instruction of the angel. Verse 61, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. was with him. And that's the narrative portion. That's the what's going on. And notice uh, we we spoke about uh, at the first sermon of this series that Luke aims to record history here. And he throws tidbits along the way to remind you of like this is eyewitness testimony. He throws in uh, little tidbits there, right? All these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. Like everybody remembers that the priest had a little boy whom he didn't name after himself. And he for nine months he couldn't speak. And then all of a sudden he could speak. And then when he did speak, This is what he said. What what do you say when you've gone nine months without the ability to articulate anything at all? And this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Verse 67 through 80. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited And redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hates us to to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. All right, let's pause for a moment and pray. Lord, we pray, do in us what you did in Zechariah 2,000 years ago. Father, we pray that You would accomplish in us the kind of worship that we see being heralded from Zechariah's lips in this text, God. And we pray these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. With newfound freedom to speak, Zechariah does not finish off that argument that he started off with Elizabeth, right? He doesn't come back to, I wanted to say this. I wanted to do this. I've been been trying to get this across to you. No, the first words out of his mouth are, blessed be God. You don't get to speak for nine months, and what he begins to speak is blessing God, praising God. What Zechariah does with the now very appreciated privilege of saying stuff (laughs) is he speaks, praises of God. And, and, and as I approach this text this week, I recognize that there is a lot to see here and really too much to be able to see in an Advent series like what we're doing. And so we're, we're, we're going to consider primarily three truths that describe the nature of Zechariah's worship here. i do the best I can to explain and point to the cool things about the text, but, but primarily we want to see three aspects of his worship that I believe are to be modeled by every Christian. Number one, Zechariah's worship was spirit-empowered. We can too easily read past verse 67 and miss the significance of what's being articulated here. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying. Now, that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, is not Just theological lanyap. I mean, that's telling the reader something about the significance of the moment. God himself is breaking into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit and filling a human being and then empowering that human being to now say things. So anything that Zechariah now says says, He's saying the things the Spirit is now giving him to say. There's a a dance between God and man here. God is filling a man and then bringing words out of his mouth in exaltation about something. It's, It's something that had not been happening in the people of Israel for 400 years in their history. But in the events surrounding Jesus' birth, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is doing this kind of work in people all over the place. And we've seen it already in Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1, verse 41 from last week, right? When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens when you get filled with the Holy Spirit? Verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your Now now the pattern is happening again. Zechariah is filled with the Spirit, though it took him a little longer than Elizabeth. That tends to be how it happens with men and women. Takes him a little longer. The next chapter we will see, uh, not next week, but the week after that, there's a man named Simeon who's filled with the Spirit and exclaims truth about Jesus. So this whole birth of Jesus thing is marked by a whole lot of Holy Spirit activity in and through people. And all of this is consistent with what the prophets foretold hundreds of years prior would happen with the coming of the promised one, with the coming of Jesus. 700 years prior to this moment, Isaiah spoke of a coming salvation that would be marked by special outpourings of the Holy Spirit of God into people. When I mean, consider just Isaiah uh, chapter 32, for example. Isaiah describes the state of God's people as being not so good. He says in verse 14, the palace is forsaken, the populous cities deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. In other words, the city is in disrepute. No one's doing what they're supposed to do, verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, and then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. Things are not going well until the Spirit will will come and will do something in people, and then we'll see flourishing again like God intended from the beginning. Isaiah 44 verse 3 says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. The prophet Joel says, it'll come to pass. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This little phrase, and he was filled with the spirit. It's not theological yap, It's saying a whole lot about what the Old Testament prophets were longing for. The Spirit of God filled Zechariah because Jesus was coming. This song, this poem, is the work of what... It's the kind of thing the Spirit of God does. He empowers God-pleasing heralding. The words used here to praise God are words that God himself are putting into his heart. And let me say something, true worship of God is a worship that God empowers us to perform. This passage is important not just because of the significance of the the redemptive history, this passage is important because the same spirit that filled Zechariah is offered to you. Like this miracle of being filled with the very presence of God so that you overflow with praises to God, is one of the blessings of the gospel. When Christ came, he came bearing good gifts. And one of the good gifts he came bearing for you, Christian, is the spirit of God that empowers you and enables you to believe true things and rejoice in those true things so much that those things are heralded out of you for other people to see and understand and believe. Now, remember, Luke writes Luke and Acts. So when he says Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, that's not the last time he uses this language. Before Jesus ascends to the Father in Acts 1.8, he says you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And if you think that's just for the 12 disciples, just hold on for just a second. Because Peter's going to stand up and preach a sermon to thousands of people. And he's going to make this promise in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children, and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. The story of the book of Acts is now carried along with one spirit filling after another as people cry out to God for boldness to say true things about God. I'll give you one example, even though I want to give you 20. Acts 4, verse 31, they're praying after persecution has struck, and the place in which the The regular Christians like you and me are gathered, is shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Christian, do not be discouraged this Christmas season. Through faith in the Lord Jesus, God visits us. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, verse 68, for he has visited us us christian god aims to visit you for your worship for your witness in the world listen christian we are not alone if you if you're dreading the Christmas holidays, because you know you got to go into family situations where there's conflict and hard conversations and difficulty. If you're dreading the Christmas holidays because there's a missing seat at the table this year and there's a grief that feels stronger than the joy, let me give you this promise from the Word of God. You are not alone. You don't grieve alone. You don't evangelize alone. You don't parent alone. You don't teach or preach or even worship or pray alone. What you need is God, and what God is happy to give you is what you need most, namely God himself. So so before we move on, let me just, do you pray for this? Do you pray for a spirit-filledness? How often do you fall on your knees and ask God for the spirit empowerment As you march into hard conversations, as you make big decisions, as you discipline your kids, as you evangelize the lost, as you gather for worship, as you struggle with anxiety or depression, how often do you fall on your knees and say, God, give me more of yourself today to empower me to do the things I know I'm incapable of doing? Zechariah's worship was spirit-empowered. But as we will see... The Spirit fills Zechariah, and then what the Spirit does, He draws out of Zechariah what was already in Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest who no doubt spent years of his life meditating on the Scriptures. And when the Spirit empowers Zechariah, what the Spirit does is he takes those Scriptures, he's been meditating on all of his life, and he brings them out of him with full clarity and passion. So number two out of three, Zechariah's worship was Scripture-saturated. So in ten verses what we see coming out of the mouth of Zechariah is are sixteen allusions, parallels, or direct quotations from the Old Testament. Even just the language he uses and the way he speaks, it sort of drips with the language of the prophets and of the psalms that he's been studying, memorizing since he was a kid. He has the vernacular of the Bible. The words of God are already in him. God enters into him and brings out the words of God he already knows to then put him on his lips in joy. A lifetime of biblical study is now coming into full focus And it's overflowing into proclamation and praise. Notice that Luke says Zechariah is prophesying here, but Zechariah is not telling the future. He's not speaking of some sort of mystical future. All Zechariah is doing is commenting on what God has already said. He's not saying something new. He's explaining and exalting in something very old, which now is coming to its climactic moment. And so just like Mary's song, the Holy Spirit takes all of the Bible that's in the heart of Zechariah, and he activates that and turns it into his joy, and he turns it into worship, and he uses it to then explain and proclaim to all the other people in the room, mystified, like, why are you naming him John? <laughs> so, so, so let me just, before we survey all these quotations, we can't hit them all. I, I just want to comment for a second on that this is the way God works in us. Okay? The same process is talked about, even in the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Colossian church. Listen to the process. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart's to God. So there's a there's a pattern here, right? There is an intake and then there is an overflow. You can't overflow without the intake, and, and if there is no overflow, then you ain't intaking correctly, okay? This is the Christian life. You inhale the word of God through every possible avenue. Your thoughts become saturated with the very ways of God in his word. And then you exhale the word of God in your relationships to one another, in your ministry to the world, and in your enjoyment of God in worship. Don't expect spirit empowerment without scripture saturation. Right? Spirit and truth sing together. They never do solos. They're never without the other. So if you want a spiritually empowered worship and ministry in the coming year, make a plan to be breathing deeply from what God has breathed out. That is the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed by God and profitable for teaching For reproof, for correction, for training and righteous that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Inhale what God has exhaled so you can exhale what God exhales. Like take it in so you can give it out. That's what Zechariah is doing now. The spirit has come and empowered him to now give out what he's been taken in. How will you breathe in the word of God more deeply this year? Zechariah's worship was scripture Saturated, And it was appropriately so. Because, because let's not forget the big picture here. Zechariah is responding to the birth of his son who will announce the arrival of the Savior that all the scriptures are about. <laughs> so if you're happy about the coming of Jesus, it makes sense that you begin to recount the scriptures that are all pointing to the main character, which is Jesus, right? So so it's a remarkable thing. One of the, one of the things that's striking about Zechariah's song is it's not primarily about his son. Right? So Zechariah has a son. Elizabeth was way too old to have a son. They'd been barren their whole life and he begins to praise God and he's not talking about his son at first. <laughs> he, he's talking about the one whom his son will announce. Jesus. And this leads us to truth number three, and then this is going to help us just walk through the whole thing. Truth number three is this, Zechariah's worship was Christ-centered. So as he alludes to the Old Testament in this song of praise, he asserts that this coming Jesus is the point of all those scriptures. So, So let me give, I'll give you a few sub points here under this note to see how he was expecting or how he was anticipating the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. We'll just look at a few of the allusions, all right? Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Where do we first hear the word redeem in the story of the Bible? We find it in the story which precludes and Gets you ready for the big salvation story. We find it in the Exodus story, right? God's people enslaved, God's people suffering, God's people needing freedom from that slavery, and then God making a promise I'm gonna save you, I'm gonna bring you out through the leadership of Moses, but ultimately through the blood of a spotless lamb, right? And so we see this promise in Exodus, Exodus 6 6, God says, I'm the Lord, and I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. See, for Zechariah, he uses the word redeem because the birth of Jesus meant that God's people... Have now been visited again and they are now ready for the full and final redeeming from all the cold, harsh slaveries of the world. It means Jesus has come. He's coming. And one of the things he offers you is freedom from the world's slavery. The fullness that won't be felt till we see Him face to face, but in some part we experience it now, free from the power of sin, free from the penalty of sin, free from the shame that cripples us, free from the guilt that drives us into incapacity that we cannot serve the Lord, free from the demands of anxieties or depressions. We do not have to live in the enslavement of what sin lies to us about anymore. There's, there's redemption now. So this is the first thing that we see uh, under Christ being the center of all this. Jesus is the Mosaic Redeemer who frees us from slavery. Moses was cool, but Jesus is better. That old Exodus story was pointing to this story that now comes with the birth of Jesus. But that's not all. He keeps rocking. Verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Subpoint point number two, Jesus is the Davidic king who conquers our enemies. In the story of the Bible, King David was the most victorious and virtuous king in Israel's history. He led them to prosperity, into safety, into victory, time and time again, but God promises that though David was cool, one day an offspring of David would come that would establish a kingdom forever and ever and ever that cannot be shaken by any enemy of yours. One day there'll be no more enemies to fight. One day there'll be a king on the throne forever. One day, total victory, forever peace would be established, and it's coming through a king from the Davidic line, a horn of salvation. Horn means, meaning symbol of power. No one can conquer or defeat this king who is coming. And what's Zechariah doing? He's just dripping with the language of all the Psalms that long for a day where you could live in the world and not fear the enemy any longer. Psalm 89, 22, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Zechariah is announcing that the powerful king who established an eternal kingdom is here in the person of Jesus. Anticipation is over. Actualization is here. The enemies don't stand a chance. That's not all. (laughs) It's not just God's promise to David he came to fulfill. It's God's promise to Abraham, verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy, holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Do you you hear the the scene that he's painting? There's a scene of people living and serving God in holiness and in righteousness with no concern that that might change. For all of their days, there will be this existence where, where you get to live in God's world it, doing things God's way and enjoying God's creation like there's this place where you get to enjoy all the holiness and righteousness God does in you and what Zechariah says is that all that is just a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham so David went back a thousand years well let's just go back another thousand years to Abraham and a promise was made Subpoint number three under this Jesus is the Abrahamic blessing who turns back the curse as early as Genesis 12, God made this promise. Genesis 12 too, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. And make your name great. So you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus was son of David to fulfill David's promise. Son of Abraham to fulfill Abraham's promise promise. The curse will be reversed and the blessing of God will win. In verse 76, Zechariah finally turns to address now, coming to the end of the song, he finally turns to address what role his son will play in all this. But even in addressing his son's role, he keeps Jesus as the focus as he understands that all his son will do would be like a prophet Elijah who'll just say he's here. He's here. Luke chapter 1, verse 76 through 79. Now, this is just beautiful. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people. Now, notice, you're not giving salvation to His people, but you're just going to give knowledge. Like, you're just going to explain it. In forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what will the sun do? What will John the Baptist do? He'll go before the Lord to prepare the way. He'll give knowledge of salvation, explain the path to forgiveness, explain what the key to eternal life will really be, repentance and faith in Jesus. He'll he'll be the one to publicly baptize Jesus and inaugurate Jesus to the public ministry. But as good and as precious as the messenger is, even Zechariah is more amazed by the one who embodies the message. He describes in this description who Jesus will be as a sunrise in verse 78. Let me say a word about this, and this is our last last sort of sub point. Jesus is the sunrise to our darkness from Malachi. This whole paragraph is a beautiful word picture coming from the very last paragraph in the Old Testament, the last prophetic word spoken. It's a picture of a world covered in darkness, a world full of sin and death and ignorance and conflict, a world without color, a world without joy, a world without clarity. But Jesus will be for the world like the rising of the sun. He will be for the world a force which causes darkness to flee from his presence and those who love the dark will be no more. And those who love the light will rejoice in full color in his light. They will see his world. They will see their God. They will be seen. They will enjoy all that God is doing. And Zechariah, he, what he's doing, he's exalting in this that all of this, this was the last word of the last prophet who spoke full of the Holy Spirit to say what was coming 400 years prior. So let me take you to that text, Malachi 4. And listen to to what we see here. Malachi 4.1 For behold, the day is coming. It's burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, that day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing, In its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes, the rules I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day. The Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their father. Lest I come strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those are last words of the Old Testament. And now Zechariah understands. His son is the Elijah prophet who will go out into Israel and say, the sun's about to rise. The sun is about rise. To rise. Isaiah 9 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them a light has shown Isaiah 63. The nation shall come to your light kings to the brightness of your rising for Zechariah. The significance of his son will be his announcing of God's son. As we come to a close this morning, let us remind ourselves from this text, our significance in this story is tied to our role in announcing the one whom the story is actually about. And Jesus says that there's no one like John the Baptist. And we don't even know that much about John the Baptist, except he said things like he must increase and I must decrease. And when Jesus showed up, John the Baptist got out of the way and said, look at him, (laughs) Look at him. Our significance in the story, the purposelessness that every human being feels will not be resolved by any job, any income, any relationship, any feeling, any pleasure this world has to offer. The purposelessness that any any human being feels in their soul will only be filled by the purpose of the universe, that is, to point to him. If you're not pointing to him and you feel like, why do I exist in the world? It's because you're missing the reason you exist in the world. Where the joy is found, where the significance lies, where the purpose is, where your sense of value and worth is, is do you point to him? Worship is Christ-centered worship scripture-saturated worship, and if you feel like you don't have it in you to do any of that, well, praise God, it's spirit-empowered worship. God actually gifts you these things to enable you to rejoice in the God of your salvation. May it be so in our worship Maybe it's so in our plans for the new year as we make resolutions about how we're going to live our lives. May the priorities be, Father, next year may I be more spirit-empowered, Scripture-saturated, and Christ-centered so that all might see the one who really does matter, and it ain't me. Let's pray. Father, may it be so even among us right now as we seek to worship you, as we seek to say corporately, blessed be the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. God, we pray, help us now to worship as you desire us to worship. Give us words that we can replay back to you in the joy of our salvation. God, I pray for those in the room who perhaps do not know this Jesus and they are scrambling around in the darkness without the sun's light. And I pray, God, that they would repent of their sin against God and that they would cling to Jesus in faith. For Jesus' birth was for the purpose that he might live the life they couldn't live and die the death that they deserve to die, and raise again on the third day to offer them this eternal life that they never could have earned. God, I pray for the non-believer in the room, help them to believe, and to trust you alone for the fulfillment of all these promises. Thank you you didn't give up on Zechariah when he expressed his disbelief at the beginning of chapter one. For that you being gracious and merciful brought him to the end of chapter one. All by your grace, Father, all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.